Hello, everybody. Um, I'm frabjously thrilled to be joined by Richard de la Riviere, who is a, a writer, and he's written an absolutely fantastic book uh, that I recommend to everybody. It's called the uh, Liverpool FC, The Premier League Years. Uh, welcome, Richard. How are you today? Yeah, I'm very well. Thanks, Owen. Yeah. Yeah, great. Um, let's just kick straight into it. Uh, tell uh, tell the listeners, Richard, where does your love uh, for Liverpool FC come from? Well, I'm not from a sporting family at all. Um, I'm from Cumbria and I went to a little primary school where everybody who liked football seemed to support either Liverpool or Manchester United. So fortunately, I went the right way. Um, I was seven <laughs> when I bought Liverpool. It was the 84-85 season. So it wasn't too long after we'd won the European Cup in Rome. And um, I remember when we used to play football in the school playground, if there was ever a penalty, the goalkeeper would sort of do this wobbly leg routine, whoever it was in goal. And I was quite <laughs> fascinated by this. And I remember saying to someone, what's all that about? And someone explained that Liverpool had this mad goalkeeper called Grobelar, and that's what he did when he faced a penalty. So, of course, that made me want to watch. And when I look back on the LFC history website, which has obviously got every game we've ever, ever played, the first one I remember is a home defeat to Sheffield Wednesday. So that's September 84. And if you if you look that game up on YouTube, you'll see that Grobelar makes a horrendous mistake to let Imre Varadi score. And that's the first game I remember. And I, I don't remember anything other than just being completely obsessed from that moment onwards. It, you know, it, I've just, it's just been a complete obsession all the way through to now. That's wonderful. Yeah, wonderful story. Yeah, if any of our listeners aren't old enough to remember Brucey, um, I'm sure you've seen the videos, that footage, the spaghetti legs uh, in Rome that may well have won us the, the European Cup on penalties. Uh, superb stuff. Um, thank you very much, Richard. And uh, so where did you get the idea to write the book? Well, I've written a couple of books on rugby league. I've been a rugby league writer since 2005, but Liverpool's always been my first sporting love. And I thought, well, you know, this is something I've always wanted to do. So I, I, I jacked in the rugby league writing about a year and a half ago. And I thought I really wanted to do something on Liverpool. And I just thought the Premier League years, you know, I, I first I first got the idea actually quite a few years ago in about 2014 when we came close to winning the league. But I didn't, you know, I'm not a particularly organised guy. And it took me a while to get, you know, started on the project. And it was about halfway through the season before last um, so, you know, we were in the title race with Man City. It was about halfway through the season. And I thought, well, if I start now, I might get it done by the end of the 2019 season. <laughs> I soon realised it was going to take a lot longer than that. You know, it was at least a year's work. But that got me started. And then, you know, I, I got a bit lucky with the timing, obviously, to, to, to get it released, to be, to be finishing it off as we were winning the league and to get it released just as we've won the league is great timing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the, I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, I've, I've, I've read... Um, uh, part of the book that you've sent me, I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. It's it's really, really well researched, Richard. I mean, I'm someone I started following Liverpool when I was about seven, when I was eight, actually in 1988. Um, right. So you know, quite a similar time. But but I, you know, I was uh, so I was sort of 12, 11, 12 when the when the Premier League started, and um, you know, I thought I remembered quite a lot of it even though it was 30 years ago but it turns out there was so many details that I'd forgotten that I actually really enjoyed uh you know reading was you know how how meticulously you've researched it so it's absolutely excellent how how did you do the research well as an example then the 92-93 season so I start every season off with just an introduction of where the club was at the time who we signed who we released 
Um, and then I go into the first game of the season. So the LFChistory.net website, obviously fantastic, because that's just got every game on there and all the match reports. And then I also use, I've got, I've got a complete collection of the, the fanzine Through the Wind and Rain. And I just loved that. It was such a funny fanzine. I, I took quite a lot of funny stories and quotes out of that. And then also the player autobiographies, that helped me out with quite a lot of this time period as well, just taking, again, amusing anecdotes, but also things in autobiographies that we wouldn't necessarily know about, just just little things that a player might have been thinking before a game, during a game. And also there's a series of books by Simon Hughes interviewing players on a sort of decade-by-decade basis, and I found a few of those very, very helpful as well. But a lot of the facts you, you talk about, I mean, I remembered a lot of it, but obviously we've got 28 years worth of games here, nearly 1,500 games, so I certainly didn't remember all of it. No, yeah, exactly. No, but there, there are lovely details. I mean, there's the, there's the facts, There's there are the key matches, key moments in the season, but also sort of the behind-the-scenes things that I really enjoyed as well, like, uh, you know, a bust-up, what well, I say enjoyed from this perspective now, like a bust-up between Ronnie Whelan and... Uh, and Graham Souness, you know, in terms of, you know, it's it, it's nice to know about, learn about these kind of things uh, from this perspective. But, uh, you know, memory is, is a strange uh, beast, a, um, a cunning animal. And, um, you know, sometimes I think from the point of view, for example, if if I had if I had read uh, this book at the end of 2014, having had the heartbreak of coming so close it would have really sort of hurt to look back at sort of, you know, all of the years where we, you know, we either came so close or we were so painfully far away from uh, from the summit of English football. But um, it does seem sort of, you know, great timing now that we've won it and sort of easier to look back now that now that we've won the league. I don't know. Is that something you would you would agree with? Yeah, I definitely got lucky there. I mean, because like I say, if I had started it in 2014, I would I would have released it on the back of a 6-1 defeat to Stoke at the end of the 2015 yes. season when I doubt anybody wanted to, to buy anything related to Liverpool, especially <laughs> a long book like this, knowing that that's how it was going to end. Stephen Gerrard's last game, 5-0 down at half-time to a team managed by Mark Hughes. And that's, you know, one end of the extreme to the other, you know, won <laughs> the league. So, yeah, I have got a bit lucky with the release. No, great. It, and, you know, it's it's really super stuff. So let's go through the Premier League years then. I thought I'd, uh, you know, ask you about them, about your opinions and things like that. Uh, just, you know, your opinions on either the, I thought I'd do it, you know, manager by manager. We've had, uh, of course, Souness, Evans, Julier, Benitez, Hodgson, well, Delgleish, uh, uh Rogers, and latterly Klopp. That's eight managers in the Premier League. Uh, years. So let's go through them all. Uh, starting with Graham Souness, of course. Um, maybe it's not just one thing, but uh, where do you think it went wrong for him? Well, with Graham, I mean, he did unfortunately get most things wrong. What I find interesting, though, is nowadays a lot of Liverpool fans are beginning to revise their opinions on Graham because he comes across on Sky as such a big Liverpool fan. He clearly loves the club. I remember through the wind and rain saying once that they thought he was Liverpool's greatest ever player, and I, I, I don't necessarily dispute that. I mean, both Graham and much of Kenny's career were just a little bit before my time. But if that's what they think, and a lot of people that think he's our greatest ever captain, but as a manager, yeah, I mean, he was too impulsive. But the things he wanted to change, I mean, he wanted to reduce the average age of the squad. He wanted to get the players fitter. 
you know, he'd, he'd experienced the Italian lifestyle and how professional the Italian footballers were in his time in, with Sampdoria. But I mean, he failed, you know, on, on those accounts. I mean, as I, as I write in the book, he actually increased the average age of the team by about a year. If you compare his first match in April 91 to the first game of his last season against Sheffield Wednesday. I mean, that day, August 93 against Sheffield Wednesday, I think we fielded something like seven 30-year-olds. And I mean, in terms of increasing, you know, improving the fitness of the players, I mean, he signed Neil Ruddock, he signed Julian Dix. His teams, you know, in, in, in the latter stages, there were some pretty unfit guys in that team. And it, I mean, he, 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 the signings as a whole, we all know that he only really got Rob Jones right. He let Peter Beardsley go for a million pounds, replaced him with Dean Saunders for three times the amount. Saunders was a poor man's Ian Rush, really. There were two number nines. Graham, I mean, he, he, you know, he did well at Rangers. We know that, and obviously Alex Ferguson did well in Scotland. But it, it was just, it was just the wrong. He, he was just the wrong man. Of course, the Hillsborough thing, selling his story to the Sun on the third anniversary of the disaster. I mean, it, Graham just got so much wrong. It was possibly, you know, wrong man, wrong time. And I always think that Roy Evans did such a good job in turning Liverpool around so quickly when he took over from Graham. Yeah, let's move on to Roy Evans then. I mean, you know. As an overview of his time and and his teams, um, you know, what's your what's your opinion on him, please? I always feel a bit sorry for Roy because we tend to we tend to remember the way that it fell apart for Roy towards the end, and we remember the Spice Boys, and that phrase has really stuck. And if you read Robbie Fowler's first autobiography, he just talks about how all the great times under Roy Evans, all the fabulous football that him and Steve McManaman and, and Stan Collymore were responsible for it is completely eradicated by those two words, the Spice Boys. Uh, whereas if you compare them to Jared Houllier, they both managed for a similar amount of time, both took over when we were struggling a bit. We tend to remember the good times under Gerard, but the bad times under Roy. I, I loved the Roy Evans years. And I think it's real credit to him that he took over and he didn't really sign, he didn't sign anybody in, in his first pre-season we started the season with very low expectations. We beat Crystal Palace 6-1. We beat Arsenal 3-0. And then towards the end of August, he brought in two centre-backs, Scales and Bab, And they were his only signings. And we were very, very good in that 94-95 season. He switched the formation to the wing-backs. That was one of the biggest tactical switches that any Liverpool manager had ever made. And it just worked. Um, the, the next season, the season after, the, we, we were up, up towards the top. We were challenging. We were playing great football. There was always a bit of inconsistency, though. And I think when teams worked us out, Roy was too slow to change things. He should have moved away from the wing-backs quicker than he did. But for that period of time that it took, you know, I remember Gary Neville admitting recently on Sky that they just couldn't work out the wing-backs. And, and we had some good wins against United in the 95-96 season and the one the season before at Anfield. I, I, I love the way that team played. and I've got a lot of fond memories of the Roy Evans era. Yeah, me too. It was always, it seemed, ah. Uh... I mean, he won the League Cup in 1995. That was his only sort of, you know, tangible success, his only trophy. Um, but, you know, we we did come close. I mean, he always seemed just, you know, one or two signings away. Uh, you know, I remember, for example, when Paul Lynch signed, and it's like, yeah, maybe he's the final piece of the yeah. jigsaw. And that just went on and on, didn't it? That, that kind of thinking, um, which is why people now um, compare... Uh, modern-day Manchester United to 90s Liverpool. But, yeah, 90s Liverpool had some absolutely marvellous players. And, uh, yeah, the, the Spice Boys tag was a bit annoying because it was just one sort of deflected lucky goal, really, by 
by Cantona that you know changed the narrative for for years for years I well, think it did but we were terrible that day <laughs> of course the white suit played into the the Spice Boys narrative I mean there were things yeah. that were the club that should have been put right and Roy, Roy didn't put them right or didn't put them right quickly enough but he, he's always accused of not being a disciplinarian but he was at first because I mean he kicked out he kicked Mark Wright and Julian Dix out of the team and he got rid of Don Hutchison and then Dix left and then Mark Wright stayed in the reserves for most of that first season and then fought his way back in um, but you know at the end of the day I suppose towards the end when most of the players say the same thing then who am I to argue he, you know, maybe his time is up after that white suit final. At the time, we would have thought it was really harsh. But in hindsight, Roy did a great job for two, two and a half years in lifting Liverpool back up. And then maybe that would have been the time for somebody else to come along. Same with Julio, because Julio did a great job for the first two, two and a half years. And then it went stale after that. Those two have a lot in common, actually, their, their managerial records. Yeah, so, I mean, it was in uh, the summer of 1998 that uh, uh, it was announced that uh, Roy would be sharing the job. Um, it's a weird thing to try and do. I, can't, I, I don't think it's happened at any other club, having two managers. Um, but yeah, Gerard Houllier brings us on to Gerard. Um, yes, for me, you can... You know, there are two distinct parts of Gerard Houllier. I mean, there's, you know, before his heart troubles and after. And uh, I remember at the time just, you know genuinely i mean it sounds like i'm joking or something but generally wondering whether the heart medication was affecting his brain uh because his transfer policy before and after uh, the, the the was was completely chalk and cheese i mean he bought some really interesting players good players solid players um and then afterwards he you know for example you know very famously refused to sign an elko and signed Duf instead um, what do you make of him, Gerard Houllier? Well, firstly, you mentioned the joint managers. I just want to read a quote from the book because this is one of my favourite quotes. I, I start each chapter off with a quote from somebody else that I've covered in the book. And on the appointment of Houllier to work alongside Evans, Des Kelly, writing for the Mirror, wrote about Roy Evans. Abraham Lincoln's prospects were brighter when he went to collect his theatre tickets and he was assassinated before he finished his popcorn. So I think everybody... <laughs> I think I think everybody knew that the writing was on the wall for Roy as soon as Gerard came in. They made a reasonable start, but then once it began to fall away in the autumn, that was the end of Roy. And there was that very sad story that he stood up before the players in tears, telling them that he was leaving the club. And then when he left the room, there were players impersonating him. And I think that was a sign that, you know, player and discipline had. was great at first i mean he, he he swept out a lot of the you know the the players that needed to go people like paul in most famously but david james and quite a few others that had been at the club for far too long i mean neil ruddock was still there and one or two others um jared Hilly, i mean yeah i mean be, before the heart operation um i mean covering that in the book was was pretty tough finding out you know from various autobiographies what actually happened on the day of the Leeds game but I think what we can conclude with Gerard was that he just came back too quickly. And I think the same thing had happened with Souness. I mean, Souness talks about the fact that he just felt really, really weak at the start of that 92-93 season. He hadn't recovered properly. And for the club, in, in less than 10 years, to make the same mistake again, Hulier should have been told, you know, to stay away on gardening leave for, you know, for a year or so, maybe. But to come back so quickly, I mean... It, his presence in the dugout helped us win that game against Roma, but you've got to look at the long-term side of it. He just wasn't ready to come back, and he 
openly admits that now. And that's that's where the club got that wrong. Um, we don't we don't know how it would have ended up because I think some of the the faults of the Hulier time were you know you could see they were there before his heart operation. We didn't always play the most attractive football. He'd he'd marginalised Robbie Fowler. He should have been quicker with Fowler to make a, a stronger decision. He should have either just got rid of him earlier or he should have found a way of of, of getting him into the first eleven every week. I think in reality Fowler wasn't really a Hulier type of player. Um, I think Julio was preferred the directness of Heskey and the speed of Owen. Um, but the, I mean, again, the Julio years were the, the early years. Were, I mean, wonderful. I was lucky enough to be in Dortmund behind the goal when we won the UEFA Cup, and that was the the completion of the treble. I mean, that that was just a magic night, singing Julio's name all night. We just thought we had a wonderful manager, and we were going to go from strength to strength. We could well have won the league the following season, but it was actually Phil Thompson in charge for most of the season. But Gerard then. Okay, he should. He, he did come back too early. There is that obvious excuse there of why things did begin to go wrong. But he then served up two seasons, which were as bad as the Sunes years, the the o two o three season, and then o three o four was absolutely awful. I think that's my least favourite Liverpool season ever. We did finish fourth. I know that, and that helped us, you know, win the Champions League in Istanbul. But that was a terrible season, awful football, terrible results, and obviously he went and and in came Rafa. Uh, yes, indeed. Um, but just stay, staying with Gerard Houllier uh, for the moment, um, somebody said it's very interesting actually. When when you, when you look at the boot room tradition, um, this I think this was on the LFC Day Trippers podcast the other day. They were talking about you know where does Klopp rank in? They were talking about all all the managers anyway, Liverpool managers, and they were talking about how um, there was this huge boot room tradition that lasted all the way up until. Uh, Roy Evans left but then with Julier and with Benitez they didn't really um, respect the tradition that it, like well, they showed uh, disrespect but they, they they just went on a different path and they put their own individual stamp on the club and it was really noticeable you know again for the listeners who who perhaps weren't around uh, to, to to watch Liverpool at that time it was really noticeable that we went from this attacking, free-flowing style to a very disciplined, ultra-professional, um, you know, Didi Herman, like a, a defensive midfield, um, almost the antithesis of, of, of Klopp's football, actually, in terms of it was all about organisation, and that was Gerard Houllier's vision of uh of football and it did bring some success i mean there were some great times but i'm just i'm just curious about your experience in um in dortmund because yes around about that time when we won the the treble i mean it was like having this uh you know his tactics were brilliant at that point and uh we had young michael owen and uh you know, the whole team was 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 blessed with great quality um of course julio brought in sammy Hupia, wonderful stuff uh, so tell me, tell us a bit more about your 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 time in in Dortmund. Oh, it was fabulous. We went on a. I went with my mate Phil, and he's a big red from my university days. And we used to go to Anfield together over from Leeds, and we managed to get on a, an official supporters club trip. Um, and it was just oh, it was it was wonderful um, to 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 experience. I mean, I've been to a couple of European finals. I went to Athens as well, and I was in Madrid, although I didn't get a ticket. But Dortmund, oh, it was just magic. Because Liverpool, OK, you might say now it was only the UEFA Cup, but we had to do it tough to win that UEFA Cup. I mean, to to play Roma, who were top of Serie A in the last 16, Porto, who a couple of years later won the European Cup under Mourinho, 
Barcelona in the semi-final. And although people didn't know much about Olivares, you know, they were still a La Liga team, the best league in the world pretty much then. And uh, wow, what a game. I mean, we were 3-1 up and coasting. I remember standing behind the goal and looking up towards the right where the BBC box was and you could see Lineker and Hansen and Lawrenson. And Hansen, what, sorry, when it was 2-0, Hansen turned to the Liverpool fans and did a cigar smoking action as, as if to say, this is really easy. This is really <laughs> oh, no. McAllister makes it 3-1 from the spot. And again, half-time, we're thinking 3-1, going to win this 4-5-1. And within a minute, well, within five minutes of the restart, they scored two goals in a minute. There was that horrible free kick that was like a daisy cut straight along the ground and the wall jumped over it and all of a sudden three all. And for the rest of the game, plus extra time, it was just panic, absolute panic, you know, that we were potentially going to throw this away. Robbie scored an absolute dream goal. And I loved when I got home, Barry Davis's commentary, calling it boys' own stuff. But then Jordi Cruyff equalises in the last minute. Robbie wrote in his book that he wanted to go over and shake Sander by the throat because that denied him the winning goal. And he'd also been denied the winning goal in the Worthington Cup final, of course, by a last-minute Birmingham equaliser. And extra time was really confusing because we didn't really know it was golden goal. I think some people might have known, but some people didn't. Alaves lost two men to second yellow cards. And then the free kick came in. And I think Delphi Gelly was the, the fella's name who headed McAllison's free kick into his own goal. And of course, I think there were still some fans in the ground who didn't know that was it. You know, some would have still been expecting the game to go on, but but that was the golden goal. Yeah, what a great memory. Yeah, I watched that at home with my my dad and my brother. It was absolute. Uh, the, yeah, I mean, apart from Istanbul, uh, the best European final um, of any team that I can that I know. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, absolutely superb. Five four. Wow. Um, so yeah, speaking of Istanbul, that was in there. Rafa Benitez first season um yeah it's a curious one um again a bit of a a bit of a sort of you know mountain shape in terms of we went up the mountain um we reached the pinnacle and then we uh went uh, pretty quickly downwards as well pretty steeply downwards under Rafa Benitez but um you know it wasn't in hindsight, I mean, how much can you can you blame, for example, his transfer policy? And let's remind ourselves that some, you know, some people that he bought, Andrea Dasenov was seven million. You know, it's quite a lot at that time. Uh, Albert Riera was eight million. Glenn Johnson, eighteen million. Albert Alberto Aquilani, seventeen point one million. Um, you know, uh, Robbie Keane. 19 million. Although I'm not sure if he actually ended up paying all of that in the end. Um, how much of it was, uh, you know, can we, of the decline, can we, can we put on, on, you know, Rafa Benitez's shoulders, um, and how much can we blame the board? Um, I, I'm biased because I love Rafa. I would put very, very little blame on his shoulders. Firstly, Rafa had six years, I think five great years, and then one bad year. Julier had six years, I would say three good years, three bad ones. So I think Rafa. Um, and of course, he won the big one as well. I, I, I just loved the Benitez years, and I think Rafa just got so much right. I mean, Julio was quick to say that was his team, but that begs the question: then why couldn't you get them past the quarterfinal of the UEFA Cup in the previous two seasons when we lost to Celtic and Marseille? And then supposedly with the same group of players, Rafa comes along and, and wins the Champions League. Rafa put Jamie Carragher at fullback, which Gerard Julio never wanted to do. He gave Steven Gerrard a freer role further at the pitch, whereas Julier tended to have him hemmed into a sort of a 4-4-2, a very rigid 4-4-2, which didn't really suit Steven. Um, and of course, he brought Xabi Alonso and, and Luis Garcia. 
But that run to Istanbul, I mean, I went to all the Anfield games, but to my everlasting regret, I didn't actually go to Istanbul. But the Chelsea game is the one, that's the greatest game I've ever been to, the greatest atmosphere, the greatest occasion. I saw somebody recently describe it as a fight for the soul of the club because we were falling away, you know, in terms of the league. And people, even at the semi-final stage, people thought we'd maybe fluked it a bit and Chelsea were going to thrash us. And of course, they'd moved so far ahead of us. They were 30-odd points ahead of us in the league. They had Mourinho. They had all Abramovich's money. They were signing some of the best players in the world. And what we did to them in those two legs, the nil-nil draw at Stamford Bridge, and then that incredible night, the 3rd of May, 2005. Anyone there, so lucky to get a ticket. I was that night and uh, so blessed to have gone. I didn't go to Istanbul because I was actually setting up a new business at the time. I was setting up a, a rugby league magazine with a friend and I thought, look, I've got to be disciplined. I can go to Istanbul and it might cost me a couple of grand. I'd rather just put that into the into my business. So I took a sort of disciplined decision. And it wasn't for about six months that I started to regret it because at first I was just so happy we'd won the European Cup. But Istanbul and, and, and what Rafa gave us, the memories of that night were absolutely fantastic. But, you know, there's nothing we can say about Istanbul that people don't already know. But I think I think we did improve from Istanbul because the following season we had a go at the title. But Chelsea were just far too good for everybody in 2006. But we, we, we cut the gap from 30 points to something like eight in one season and he didn't recruit particularly well it was I mean Rayner was good obviously Crouch Sissoko it was a it was a decent summer of, of transfers in in 2005 but it wasn't brilliant I think Zenden was another one that came in but Rafa Rafa just improved things because he was just a tactical genius 0607 we were out of the title race quite early unfortunately because we struggled to win an away game in the first half of the season but then Athens to get to Athens to win in the new camp the famous Risa Bellamy story of course to beat Chelsea again and again I was lucky enough to beat the Anfield leg of that semi-final when we beat them on penalties we dominated them that night and 1-0 was just didn't reflect what, what actually happened on the field I think Cout had a goal just allowed he hit the bar as well and we deservedly won that on penalties but what Rafa's genius was really was, was keeping things together when Hicks and Gillette were just tearing the club apart I mean, when, when Hodgson was managing us, some of his friends in the media were always looking to protect him by pointing out that Hicks and Gillette were ruining the club. But they started that under Rafa. And I think Rafa wasn't able to sign a lot of players who he wanted to bring in. I mean, David Silver was one player he wanted to bring in. There were quite a lot of others that I've detailed in the book. And, and Rafa sort of soldiered on. The Robbie Keane signing was strange, admittedly, but, you know, we got most of the money back. But the 8 9 season, the, the, the team that Benitez built with Gerard at number 10 behind Torres. That was magnificent. Alonso Mascherano in midfield, Carragher and Aguirre at the back, and um, Pepe Reina in goal. That, that, that was just a wonderful team. I've got so many happy memories of that 08-09 season. And then he just had one bad season when, when Gerard lost his form quite spectacularly. Torres was injured quite a lot in the 09-10 season, and things, things did go wrong that season. But we got very close to the uh, UEFA Cup final. I think I think the semi-final against Atletico Madrid, we had to get the train all the way there because of the ash cloud. I mean, that's pretty unlucky. We lost the away leg 1-0 and then the um, the away goal in, in extra time did us in the home leg. And we, we, you know, we were in the hunt for the top four until right at the end of the season. I, th- I thought it was a mistake to sack Benitez from a footballing point of view, but the club was just completely out of control by then. I think the people who sacked Benitez weren't footballing men at all. And the club had turned into a bit of a soap opera at that point. 
Yeah, it was absolutely horrific times, wasn't it? I mean, this was... Uh, I've got the, the pre- uh, Rafa Benitez Premier League record in front of me. So it's very interesting. I mean, 08, 09, um, we won 25, drew 11 and lost only two. Um, it finished with 86 points. It would have been enough to win the league on, you know, several years of in yeah. Premier League history, but just missed out. Uh, so we finished second. But then the season after, that was the steep downhill that I was talking about that was just yeah but I forgot it was just one season so we went from 125 drawn 11 and lost two to 118 drawn nine and lost 11 Mm. um you know uh, we went from scoring 77 and conceding only 27 to scoring 61 and conceding only 35. But I'm exactly the same as you, Richard. I was playing a bit devil's advocate before. I totally love Rafa, and I definitely would have kept him on. And the idea of replacing him with uh, the Hodge, I've said this before on Copon, when you look back on the horror of it, I mean, we were going into administration. Uh, there were ho- ho- legal battles going on off the field. On the field, we had Hodgie, and it felt like the Hodgson years. But actually, he was only in charge for six months. But, you know, <laughs> they were the unhappiest times I've had as a Liverpool fan. Uh, I-, I don't know how you feel about Hodgson. Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, I, I knew it was a terrible decision. I knew he wasn't going to be a good fit. Me too. Absolutely. And Everybody did, apart from the people who counted. I remember where I was when I read that Rafa was getting the sack. I was sat in an internet cafe in Mozambique. It was the 3rd of June 2010. And I just thought, what on earth are we doing? This is a terrible mistake. And then briefly, there was a, the idea that Kenny might take over. And I remember getting my hopes up. And then reading that, no, that actually wasn't going to happen. I was still away. So it was sort of trying to get half an hour a day in an internet cafe to find out what was happening and realising that Roy Hodgson actually was going to come to Liverpool just because he'd got full into the Europa League final. Um, I mean, to be fair, they did beat Juventus 4-1 in that run. Um, but I think I think Danny Murphy had convinced that had convinced Jared and Carragher that he'd do a good job because obviously Murphy was at Fulham. He was in that team. And I suspect Carragher and Gerrard probably weren't too sad to see Rafa go and you know ended up sort of maybe believing Murphy that that Hodgson would be a good job would would do a good job and be a, be a good fit he was unlucky on his debut Hodgson because of course Joe Cole got sent off and then Pepe Reina scored an own goal against Arsenal but I went to the Man City game the second game of the season at the Etihad and oh we were absolutely awful of course that's when Mascherano pulled out of the game because he wanted to go to Barcelona obviously that didn't help but look at his signings. I mean, they were absolutely pitiful, weren't they? That was probably the worst transfer window we've ever had. Some of those players, um, obviously Koncheski, but Christian Poulsen. It was just a nightmare, wasn't it? That went. I mean, Blackpool at home, Northampton. I even remember, I didn't even know we were playing a game one day. I was just wandering around my local supermarket and my mate texted me saying we we're losing at home to Wolves. It was just after Christmas. I didn't even know we were playing that day. I've always supported Liverpool as much as ever during the bad times, but it was so hard to keep your enthusiasm levels up. Whereas now you just can't wait for the next game. Back then there was just always a sense of dread about what the next game would bring. And that's just how I remember the Roy Hodgson years. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Luckily months. Yeah, exactly. You see, you made the same mistake. The Roy yeah, Hodgson years, they felt like about a decade. Yeah. But yeah, he was just there for a few months. Yeah. But no, absolutely horrible. I've got the full list of his... Uh, 
of his uh, one uh, summer transfer window he had with us. So Joe Cole. Um, and oh, yeah, it's funny you should mention uh, debuts because I've, I've had this thing, actually. This is some kind of, you know, it has no logic to it whatsoever. But I've always had this sort of superstition that if a player does well on debut, then they're going to be really good. And if they do badly on their debut, then they're going to be really bad. So, for example, Luis Suarez scored on, scored on his debut. Uh, Daniel Sturridge did. Um, uh, Thiago gave away a penalty, but it was saved. For me, yeah. that's that's like destiny saying, yeah, we've got your back this time, Liverpool. No, I can remember some good debuts from Nigel Clough. I was there when he scored two. Oh, really? Okay, so it doesn't Min- always Mignolet, work. Okay. Mignolet <laughs> saved a penalty on his debut course. <laughs> yeah, true, true, true. In terms of managers, um, the last Liverpool manager to win his first league game, um, not including the joint managers, was actually Graeme Souness. Wow, okay, so there you go. You've thrown my, thrown my theory into the fire. Okay, never mind. So, yeah, going back to the uh, Hodges transfer window. God, the memories. Oh, I've just had lunch. It's going to bring some of this back up. <laughs> Joe Cole, Danny Wilson, Fabio Aurelio, very good player, Christian Poulsen, Brad Jones, Raul Marilles, Paul Koncheski, and Suso, who was another good player, but uh, well, obviously he, he was too young. Defend Roy a little bit. Um, I think Cole came in, Cole had agreed to come in before Hodgson, and I think Benita signed uh, Jovanovic. Um, Raul Morelis was a good player, but Hodgson played him out of position. So Morelis was pretty poor under Hodgson, and then Kenny put him back into his proper role in the middle, whereas I think Hodgson had him on the left. Yes, he and, did. And couldn't stop scoring in Kenny's first couple of months. Um, and obviously Suso was a play good potential yeah but no, I, can't, I can't defend him any more than that well i mean well done for trying because uh, <laughs> yeah i mean we got we got off to our worst start uh, ever under hodgson it, we we won one of our first eight games and uh, he quite famously said liverpool is not too big a club to go down so there you go um so that's how how badly he understood us uh yeah, uh, but then, you know, I think Sir Kenny came in and I think he did actually a marvellous job. I mean, I'll just go back to my list of um, Liverpool managers and, and what they did. So we ended up uh, the season uh, in sixth, having recovered, you know, started with our worst start ever. Uh, we ended up in sixth and I thought that was unbelievable. And then in his first full season, we finished eighth, his only full season we finished eighth, which was desperately unlucky. I mean, we scored only 47 goals that season under Kenny, but we hit the post. I think Suarez alone hit the post about 25 times. Yeah. Um, you know, what did you make of his brief stint, Richard? Well, at the time, I remember a lot of my mates who don't support Liverpool just laughing and saying, oh, this is ridiculous. He's just bringing him back because he's a legend and not, you know, he'd been out of the game for so long. But that appointment in terms of him coming in as a caretaker manager was was exactly what the club needed at the time. I mean, morale was absolutely on the floor. And I think bringing him back, I remember just being so elated and everybody just being so up for that game at Old Trafford. And again, I was lucky enough to be at that. And I can still remember being at Old Trafford and the Liverpool fans obviously at the other end of the ground to where the tunnel is. And everyone's squinting and waiting to see him come out in his massive manager's jacket. And I can still see him in my mind's eye 
lifting his arms up and and sort of you know two clenched fists saluting the Liverpool supporters from 100 yards away. He got us passing the ball again very quickly after Hodgson's long ball tactics. He brought in Steve Clark, and for the first time in about two or three years, we actually looked good defensively again. Because the last year under Rafa, we didn't look too good defensively, and then we we weren't under Hodgson. So we, you know, we we, we looked strong at the back again. And I remember towards the end of that 10-11 season, we went down to Arsenal. We played that incredible one-all draw where the, the two goals that went in were something like 10 or 11 minutes into injury time, um, the two penalties. And I remember that we, we had two very young kids playing fullback that day. I think we had Flanagan on one side and, and Robinson on the other. And I remember being so impressed with him that he was bringing through youngsters and he just seemed to be getting everything right. And then the following season... Like you say, we kept hitting the woodwork. We had the most incredible stats for hitting the woodwork. I think by Christmas, we'd scored 19 goals, but we'd hit the woodwork another 17 times. I mean, just impossible statistics. But he he, he undid himself with his transfers, really. I mean, we can't just criticise Hodgson and then not look at Dalglish's. Obviously brought in Suarez, which was fantastic. But Andy Carroll for 35 million. We'd only played in the top division for three or four months. And then in the summer... He exacerbated that by bringing in Downing. Obviously, he thought he needed a winger if he's got Carroll in the middle. So 50 million was tied up in the fact that Downing would supply the crosses for Carroll to head in. And at the end of that season, Carroll had barely scored any. And sorry, first full season with Downing. Downing hadn't provided a single assist or goal from that left-hand side, and he cost 20 million. And of course, there was uh, Charlie Adam in the middle as well. And he signed Henderson, but Henderson was played on the right-hand side of that 11-12 season and had a really poor first season. And I think that was what undid Kenny. I think if he hadn't actually signed anyone, you know, in that summer, um, he could have maybe kept hold of, a, you know, a, a few and we might have actually sort of done better. But that's where he went wrong. And in the second half of his of the one full season, of course, was just totally undermined by the Luis Suarez, Patrice Evra episode. And the club handled that so badly. And I think that, you know, morale just, just fell away again. And we won the League Cup on penalties against Cardiff. But then... The season ended there, really. It was just a nightmare after that. We just collapsed. We were still in with the hunt at the top four. We lost at home to Arsenal, where we played well. But again, we lost to a last-minute goal. And then we just collapsed. Yeah, I remember the end of that season. But, I, you know, I, I, had, I had the impression that we, our players were sort of saving ourselves for the FA Cup to have a, you know, a big run at the FA Cup. We got to the final, of course. We lost to Chelsea, yeah. I believe. Um, well, that was the impression I got, that the players were sort of in this sort of old-school style of uh, Liverpool boots room it's like well okay the league's gone let's try and win some silverware for the for the you know for the for the fans you know um but yeah I mean I remember being bitterly disappointed when Dalglish was sacked personally yeah, I mean, yeah. uh-huh yeah yeah same here I mean you know I've pointed out a couple of things that he did wrong but yeah it, it, it was it was terrible to see him being sacked but I think in hindsight the, the club probably got it right in doing that, it's just questionable whether Brendan Rodgers was the right man to follow him. Yeah, you see, I think Kenny, you know, Sterling was already at the club, you know, young Sterling. He he was actually signed uh, before um, and by Benitez, I think. And um, yeah, so I think Dalglish and Steve Clark could have got more out of Suarez. I mean, we will never know Suarez and Sterling and these kind of people. Yeah. And uh, I don't know, but Brendan Rodgers came into our, our league position under uh, Sir Kenny's last season was eighth. Then Brendan came in uh, the 12, 13 season 
Um, we finished under Rogers uh, seventh, then we jumped to second, then sixth um, in his full seasons. So, uh, what do you? I mean, Brendan. Yeah, give me a lowdown on on him. <laughs> well, Brendan was immediately thrown under the bus by the club when he had to do that ridiculous fly on the wall documentary called Being Liverpool. That was such an un-Liverpool thing to do. I think the owners wanted it to to make a big impression on the American market. And to be fair, Liverpool is now massive in America, but I don't know how much that played in it. But it made that documentary made Rogers look awful. It, that really didn't uh, put him out in a good light. The 12-13 season was a write-off, really. You know, Rogers just came in and got rid of a lot of Dalgleish's players. He tried to get rid of Henderson, of course, tried his hardest to get rid of Henderson. And one of the stories I've got in the book is that Henderson was told in Edinburgh when Liverpool were playing Hearts in the Europa League that he was no longer needed. And Henderson went back to his hotel room and cried. He rang his dad and the two of them, Jordan and, and his dad, Brian, decided that he wasn't going to go anywhere. He was just going to defy Brendan and he was going to stay at the club. And, well, you know, luckily he did that. The 12-13 season, we actually managed to start that season with with other than Suarez, no strikers at all. Unfortunately, he didn't get injured. And he, he just that's when he came into his own, I think, Lewis, when he didn't have to play alongside Carroll anymore. And then just gradually built from there because it was that winter, January 13, that, that Brendan then brought in Felipe Coutinho for £8 million. I mean, wow, what a signing. When you bear in mind, A, how good he was, and B, how much money we ended up getting for him. And, of course, he also brought in Sturridge, despite the fact that he, he previously unfanced Sturridge. And those two were great. And then that's when Liverpool began to move to the next level. But I think under Kenny, if Kenny had still been manager, we wouldn't have conceded 50 goals in the 13-14 season. And that's what undid us. But it's just a question of whether we would have scored 101 goals at the other end. We we, we don't know. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, yeah. Uh, so that was amazing. Yeah, scored 101, conceded 50. Uh, so our points under Brendan, they were 61, 84 and then 62. I mean, that's a, what do they call that? A bell curve, something like that. <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, then, of course, Jurgen came in uh, October 2015, five years ago now. Wow. And it's been absolute joy. The first season, it, we ended up with only 60 points. Uh, sack him. Jurgen out. He's just an, you know, he's just a cheerleader. Those kind of bullshit chance and then i think i think that was richard keys's opinion i don't think he actually said sacking but there were in that first season there were a lot of people that wanted to compare jürgen's league record to brendan's league record whereas yeah. i think jürgen was focusing on the, the, the europa league and the and the league cup um, yeah but improvements were there i mean you only had to have a pair of eyes to see how much we were improving especially in the big games you know three one at Stamford bridge four one at the etihad in his, in his first couple of months um, I mean, there were big inconsistencies at first. I remember there was some, you know, we went to Newcastle, Watford in that uh, winter when it wasn't good. Had a lot of injuries. But, um, Jürgen actually really struggled in his first two winters. And then when you look at how his subsequent winters have been, absolutely brilliant, pretty much 100% success rate. You can see that he's learned from English football and he's had to adapt. And he's just got everything right, hasn't he? We're so lucky to have him. It's unbelievable. And, uh, you know, his his eye in the transfer market is absolutely insane it's so good so i mean he's taken us 60 points 76 points 75 points 97 points and 99 points i mean 
quantum leaps, absolute quantum leaps to get us from his first team, you know, his first ever match uh, back in October 2015 with, uh, you know, players like Joe Allen in the team. And now um, take your pick from Thiago, uh, Fabinho, Henderson, Vinaldum. We've got quality absolutely everywhere. And as you say, like, you know, the joy is back. We can't wait for every single match now. Um, The only, uh, I don't know, I've got millions of questions, but the only thing, I don't know, I've got uh, something I've been thinking about, like the 97-point season, right? We conceded 22 goals in the whole season. We scored 89. Um, We only lost one match. You could argue that it was even better than the 99-point season, could you? No, because a lot of the points we dropped in the 99-point season were after we'd basically got it wrapped up after the lockdown. I don't think the team would have trained with any real intensity after the lockdown. They were already out of the Champions League, and they knew the league was going to be won. So I think I think probably training went back to just being a quick game of five-a-side, and that was it. I, I don't think they were playing with any intensity. So I think a lot of the... If it hadn't been for the lockdown, I think we'd have probably maybe got 100 and... 506 points, something like that, maybe even more. Um, to to win 27 of your first 28 games, that we'll never see anything like that ever again. And that's what the 1920 season should be remembered for. Yeah, 26 out of 27. Um, yeah, I mean, will it ever be done again? Maybe this season, because uh, we've got some... <laughs> We got some. We got some mad. Uh, we got some absolutely unbelievable players, haven't we? I mean, look at the spine: Van Dyke, Thiago, Henderson, Firmino, Allison. I mean, oh. Um. So you know, our next match uh, is is Arsenal. Um. Uh, in the Premier League. Uh, just uh, give me your give me your expectations for the, for that match in the Premier League on Monday. Well, firstly, when you talk about how good this team is. What I love about this team is that this is a 4-3-3, supposedly. That's what the media always has. But we don't really play like a 4-3-3. I mean, the full-backs play like wing-backs. But they're not called wing-backs because, you know, you only tend to get called a wing-back if you've got three centre-halves. But our guys play like wing-backs, yet there's only two centre-halves. Um, and then the two more advanced midfielders, they don't sort of produce the stats that De Bruyne does because primarily Wijnaldum and Henderson have been there to sort of protect Alexander-Arnold and, um, and Robertson going forward. Then we've got a number nine who gets criticised for not scoring. But when you look at the way that he plays, the absolute master of the false nine is, is Bobby Firmino and the, 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 the work and leading the press. And then, of course, him playing deeper allows Mane and Salah to play narrower and to play like a couple of number nines when, when we've got the ball. And I don't think many teams have, have quite worked us out yet. We're not playing a conventional 4-3-3 like City do. And I think they're probably easier to manage against than, than we are. As for the Arsenal game, well, who knows? They've they've beaten us a couple of times recently, but their record at Anfield is absolutely terrible. I mean, since Jürgen's taken over, we've scored so many goals against them at Anfield. They're very different now, obviously, so I'm expecting a much tougher game than in recent years. But anything less than a win, I think, will be will be a disappointment. I find it hard to. I mean, you know, I don't want to. I don't want to sound arrogant, but I find it hard to imagine getting beaten. Uh, with this team because I, I would put us not as just a, you know the best Liverpool the best team in the league but uh, probably the best team in the world but I've just got one you know a couple of final questions two questions really um, a lot of people are saying you know we're back on our perch I'm not saying that I've never said that 
because for me, um, we need 21 league titles. We need one more than United to be truly back on our perch, which is, you know, indisputably the greatest team in the history of English football. Um, would you agree with me or would you say we're already back on our perch because we're the league winners, league champions? Well, there we were, because we've, we've still got three more European Cups in them. So three European Cups is, is more than one league title. So we're, we're certainly ahead of United as England's greatest ever team. But I hated the perch quote, because Ferguson didn't actually make the perch quote when they got their 19th title. He made it a long time before that. And then he also claimed that he'd knocked Liverpool off their perch, which completely wasn't true, because by the time they won the league, we were already pretty awful by, by 1993. And for some reason, it's just a quote that everybody's remembered it. Of course, Liverpool fans liked then giving it back, which I think Phil Thompson did when we won the league. But it's a, it's a quote that I've never really liked, to be honest. We, we're certainly on the perch of English football, aren't we? We're, we're easily the best. And we're, we're there to be knocked down, which is great. Yeah, so. it is great. It is great. But I, OK. Um, yeah. But I mean, there's, for me, there's there's this niggling thing that, you know, United have 20 titles. We have 19. And, uh, you know, I think by the end yeah. of next season, yeah, but there's other reasons for wanting to win it rather than uh, you know thinking too much about United. Oh yes, absolutely. No, no, no. It's just it's just niggling somewhere. It's yeah. like it's sort of you know a grain of sawdust in the yeah. you know in the shadow of joy. That's yeah. what it is. Yeah. Well, they look miles off winning another one, don't they? And um, we look a lot closer to winning another one. But you, you can never tell what's around the corner. I mean, who would have thought in 1990 we wouldn't win another one and they'd win 13 before we won another one? So yeah. You, uh, you never know, do you? You never know. Absolutely. You never know. Um, one final question then, Richard. Thank you so much. Um, uh, sorry, yeah, before the final question, where can, where can we actually, where can we buy the book? Where can we get it? It's on Amazon. It's on eBay if you look for the title of the book. Um, I can send out signed copies if people buy them directly from my website. So it's my name and then .co.uk. Um, unfortunately, I've got a, a bit of a tricky name. So richarddelariviere.co.uk. Um, people can follow me on Twitter. I've also got a Facebook group called Liverpool FC, the Premier League. Yeah, so all the information will be on there. Um, I've got it into a few bookshops in the northwest. So it's News from Nowhere, which is in Liverpool, Pritchard, which is in um, Crosby, and also Broadhurst, which is in Southport. So there, there are three bookshops in the Merseyside area that are stocking it. But um, if people want to just buy direct from me online, that's probably the easiest. Great stuff. Absolutely. So it's Liverpool FC, the Premier League years by Richard de la Riviere. My final question is, um, you know, if you could choose, I think I know your answer, but if you could choose one player as, you know, Liverpool's best player in all of the Premier League years, who would it be? Like most people, I would go with Steven Gerrard. Um, I suppose the question is, when will somebody overtake Gerrard? And I'd say maybe if Van Dijk, Salah or Mane were to produce another three or four seasons like the last couple, then maybe they would be looking then to overtake Steven. But who knows? Yeah, great. OK, well, we've got all of this, all of this to look forward to. It's uh, it's. Uh... It's wonderful times and uh, it's a wonderful story and uh, a great book. So thank you very much, Richard. Thank you for everything. No problem, Owen. Thank you for having me on.